So as you may have gathered, we're beginning a new series this morning. We finished up Jonah a couple of weeks ago, and so we're starting fresh. We're looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians. So if you have your Bible with you, turn to Galatians chapter 1. As you may remember, our normal plan is to alternate back and forth between New and Old Testament, uh, that we might explore both parts of God's revelation to us, to see all of God's purpose for us. And as we do that, as much as we're able, I, I'm, my plan, my intention at least, is to explore different genres in Scripture as we do that. So we looked at a biblical history first, the Gospel of Mark. Then we looked in the Old Testament at a, a book of prophecy, a minor prophet, so-called because of its length, not because of its importance. It's short, not long, not that it's less important. Anyway, so we looked at a prophet, and now we're going to, going back to the New Testament, we're going to look at an epistle or a letter Uh, a teaching section uh, of the New Testament in Galatians. Interestingly, uh, as we'll talk about in a little bit, Galatians is very likely the first book to be written of what we now call the New Testament. It's the earliest book, the first book that God gave to his church after the close of the Old Testament. Uh, But, first or last, it is God's word. And so we need the Lord to speak to us through it today. So let's Together, let's ask him to do exactly that. If you're able, please stand while I pray and remain standing as I read from the first chapter of Galatians. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in it. We pray, however, because we are still sinful, because our hearts are still far from you, we pray that you would give us your spirit and restrain our sin. Open our eyes that we would see your truth soften our hearts that we would love your truth and that we would obey your truth that we would live it out apply it faithfully in our lives we pray lord jesus send us your spirit be amongst us reveal yourself to us in your word as you have promised we pray it all in your your very name lord jesus amen so that i'm reading from galatians chapter one this is god's word paul an apostle not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Be seated. It has been said that as long as there are tests, there will be prayer in schools. And based on my own purely subjective experience, anecdotal experience, I'd say that's exactly right. People who are under stress, who are fearing failure, will reach out for some form of help, even if they would absolutely deny the existence of any deity at any other time. When you get into that moment under stress, when you're afraid you're going to fail, you're going to reach out to anything you think might help out. It is just part of the innate nature of humanity, human existence built into us from the very creation. Our hearts cry out to God. Unfortunately, there are other innate facets of the human experience that come a few chapters later in Genesis that are less good 
that are unfortunately just as ubiquitous, just as common. For example, conflict in the church. I read this, li- this week uh, a list of issues that have created conflict in different churches. Some very important, some utterly inane, some in the middle there, but all sources of conflict in God's church. So here we go. Are you ready? This is some of that list. This, I just picked out some of the things that I have seen in my lifetime. So this is just the last, well, 25 years that I've been a Christian, that I've seen these conflicts break out in particular churches. You ready? Alcohol. Is it acceptable for Christians to drink? Baptism. How much water is enough? Do you have to dunk or can you just sprinkle? Also, should we do those baptism things to babies or not? Contraception. Should Christians use birth control, and if so, what kinds? Dating. Is this just a fun way for people to get to know each other, or is it an institution so likely to lead to immorality and heartbreak that we should just come up with something completely different? Maybe go back to arranged marriages. Seriously, that was a conversation that I had with... Anyway... Evolution. All Christians agree that God created the world, but how? What was the mechanism that he used and how long did it take? Furniture. Not lying. How should we appoint the sanctuary? Chairs or pews? And once we've got it appointed, if our needs change later, can we change what's in the sanctuary? I wish, I wish that that was not a thing. Government. How should the church be governed? Deacons, elders, bishops, men, women. How do we do it? Halloween. Is it an irredeemable holiday of Satanism and witchcraft? Or is it a fun chance to meet neighbors that you might not otherwise see and, hey, get some candy? Israel. What continuing relevance, if any, is there for Christians in the modern nation-state of Israel? Justice. What is biblical justice? What involvement should we have in bringing about biblical justice? And what connection is there to the modern idea of social justice? The Lord's Supper. What exactly happens in the meal? How often should we take it? Wine or grape juice? Masks. A good idea to protect others or caving into the spirit of fear? Parenting. What is the right way to parent. R-rated movies. Should Christians watch them or not? Schooling. What is the best way to school your children? Public school, private school, homeschool, something else entirely? Theological systems. Reformed, Arminian, Lutheran, Catholic, Pentecostal, Anglican. Which way do we go? Voting. Which candidates, which parties should Christians vote for? And how involved can Christians be in politics? Worship, really literally anything to do with worship has caused a fight somewhere. Uh, What music, what instruments, what readings, in what order, who does what, that list just doesn't ever have an ending. Anything done in worship has created a fight at some point in the church. The end of the world. When will Christ come? Is it pre-millennial, post-millennial, ah-millennial, pan-millennial? That is, it'll all pan out in the end. As Christians, we find all sorts of things to fight about, don't we? As I said, some are serious and and even essential things that we should approach carefully, about which we should know where we stand. 
and we should actually take a stand. Some are things Scripture doesn't speak to directly that require wisdom of applying the principles in Scripture to a situation that is not really covered by Scripture exactly, but which we should also recognize that other faithful Christians might apply wisdom a little differently, land in a slightly different place, and still be faithful. Some of those conflicts are not worthy of our time at all. As we begin to look at Galatians, there are some preliminary things that we have to recognize about this book. It is what has been called an occasional book. That is, it was written to speak to a specific occasion or a specific set of circumstances that were present at the time that it was written. Uh, the circumstance that occasioned this particular book is conflict in the church. Uh, the conflict that Paul is addressing here is very much of the utterly, absolutely, without question, essential variety. Paul recognized that the issue going on here that was being fought over is an issue that the church absolutely had to get it right. This conflict was for the beating heart of the gospel itself. Now, as I said, this is almost certainly the first book actually written of those that would come to make up the New Testament. As Christians in the 21st century today, we know generally the events that happened in the first century church. But after 20 centuries, the specific order that they happened tends to get a little muddled up in our mind, right? We, we tend to lose track of what happened when and what order. So bear with me for a minute as I run through just a brief timeline of the, the first few decades of the church. Uh, though we don't know exactly, Jesus was likely crucified between about A.D. 30 to A.D. 32, probably closer to the end of that time. Uh, Saul, who would become far better known as Paul, uh, was persecuting the church on orders of the Sanhedrin by, San, uh, by A.D. 34 at the very latest, possibly A.D. 33, or to say it another way, within a year of Jesus' crucifixion, Saul was already on the warpath looking to destroy Christianity entirely. We know that because it's almost certain that the Lord met him on the road to Damascus no later than A.D. 34 and probably in A.D. 33. As I said, within one year of his crucifixion, Paul had been on the road to destroy Christianity and then struck down on the road to Damascus and become a Christian himself. After that meeting and Paul's conversion, he spent about 14 years isolated, studying the scriptures, relearning from the Lord what the Old Testament, as we would call it, actually said about the Messiah. Drinking deeply of God's word, learning from the Lord himself. He very briefly met with Peter for probably a couple of weeks in that time, uh, but spent most of that 14-year period secluded in the Arabian desert, drinking deeply from God's word. And then somewhere Around A.D. 47 to 48, Paul re-entered Christian society, returning to Jerusalem and then to uh, Syrian Antioch at the far northeastern corner of the, uh, of the Mediterranean there. Uh, and from there, he set out on his first missionary journey, recorded in Acts 13 and 14, uh, across Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, and as I said, Acts recounts the story of this journey in chapters 13 and 14. If you want to read that later this week, you can see exactly kind of the path that he took and which cities he visited and like that. Uh, particularly, though, he stops in the cities of Pisidian Antioch, which is different from Syrian Antioch, uh, and Lystra and Iconium. 
And though Acts doesn't designate them this way, these were the main cities on the overland trade route from the European portion of the Roman Empire to what we now call Palestine, the, the Arabian or the Asian portion of the Roman Empire. And as such, they were major cities. And they were the cities in the Roman province of Galatia. So these three cities that are mentioned in Acts 13 and 14 are the churches to whom Paul is writing in this book. They are the churches of the Galatians. Acts gives us the record of Paul's time establishing these churches in these Galatian cities around AD 48. But very shortly after his return to Syrian Antioch at the end of that first missionary journey, uh, Acts 15.1 tells us that some men came from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you become a faithful Jew, you cannot be a faithful Christian. You've got to be a Jew first before you can be a Christian. And this message gained significant traction in the Jewish region of Christianity, at least, because it wasn't an additional burden, burden to them. They'd all converted to Christianity out of Judaism. They'd all already been circumcised. They'd already met the entrance requirements to be a faithful Jew. And so it was entirely academic whether you had to be a Jew or not to them. Does a man need to become a Jew before he can come to the Jewish Messiah? But the idea also gained significant traction in the newly planted churches in Galatia. We get the sense that this is in particular where these men were aiming their teaching. That they went to these Gentile converts to Christianity and taught that you had to first come to Moses before you could come to Jesus. And for them, it was very much not academic. It was into this context that Paul writes this letter, probably in AD 49, maybe again, maybe as early as 48. Again, Remember, we're still within 15 to 20 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is very early. Within a year after this letter, the churches, this would become such a big contentious issue that the churches would send representatives to Jerusalem together to meet in council and decide the issue. What would become known as the Jerusalem Council, which you see in Acts 15, if you want to read that later. Of course, that council will very much decide in favor of Paul's understanding and teaching of the gospel that you do not have to keep the law of Moses before you can be a Christian as a prerequisite to faith in Christ. But for our purposes, as we study Galatians, that council is still in the future. This is very much a live issue, a debate over the heart, the very center of the gospel. For all that it's theological, it is also personal. The men who were teaching this return to Moses version of the gospel were also trying very hard to undermine Paul's authority because he was the one against whom they were preaching. He was, they said, not an apostle at all. In the Greek word of the day, the, the, the world of the day, the, the word apostle just was somebody who was sent, a, a representative or an emissary and such a representative in the kind of the legal understanding of the day had broad legal rights to stand in the place of the one who sent them, making legal agreements, including things like a betrothal. Something sort of akin to our modern idea of the power of attorney. 
Now, Christianity took this idea of one who is sent to represent another and developed it more fully and more specifically into the idea that we have today of the apostles, those who were specifically commissioned by Jesus to be his representatives in the first generation of the church, establishing the church in that first generation. The apostles were the twelve, the men who had been Jesus' closest disciples, who had walked around Palestine with Jesus for three years, been witnesses to his death and to his resurrection, and had been called personally by him. But from these men who were teaching this other understanding of the gospel, for them, Paul had none of those things. Paul had not been one of the disciples of Jesus. Paul had not been a personal witness of the resurrection of Christ. How could he have been? He was still persecuting the church a year and more after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. How could he be witness of the resurrection and called personally by Jesus? At the most, they said, he was sent by the actual apostles. So he was an apostle of the apostles, a representative of the ones who represented Jesus. He had been sent with a message, but that message he had taken and garbled badly along the way. And these two attacks, that Paul is not a true apostle and thus had no authority to teach what he taught, and that men must first come to Moses before they can come to Christ, these two attacks form the background of the letter to the Galatians. Now, I say that so that we can see that Paul isn't playing around uh, with these live grenades that have been thrown. By the second word of this letter, he's already refuting the attacks. He says in, 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 in the, the introduction telling them who is writing the letter, he says, Paul, apostle. The second word, he's already fighting against these attacks. Ancient letters, Christian or not, had this clearly defined format. You'd start with a statement of who's writing, followed by a statement of who's receiving, and then greetings. Very straightforward and simple, and usually very short. Just Paul to the Galatians, greetings would be the normal, ordinary format. And of course, Paul takes this in all of his letters and expands on it and builds on it. It begins to introduce his themes, even in this beginning greeting. Uh, and only after, and, and sometimes often there'd be a, a section about thanksgiving for the addressees. And only then do you get to the meat of the letter. But Paul hasn't even gotten through the statement of the sender begin, before he begins to address this issues that will define the letter. He clearly states that he is an apostle of the exact same kind as Peter and James and John and the rest of the twelve. He, too, was commissioned by Jesus to proclaim the gospel, and not just commissioned, but commissioned directly in face-to-face encounter with the risen Lord. Not, verse 1, from men, as if he'd been sent by the apostles, or through the agency of man, as if one of the other apostles had laid hands on him and said, now Jesus is sending you by me. No, he says, I got it straight from the risen Lord. Now, this may seem like a relatively small thing compared to the essence of the gospel, which is at stake in the argument over the law of Moses. But since it's a significant part of the weight of the accusation against Paul is that he far exceeded his own authority. That if he had just preached what he had been told to preach by the other apostles, then he would have agreed that you have to be a good Jew before you can come to Christ. 
The radical nature of the gospel of grace requires the direct authority of the risen Son of God to establish it. Otherwise, the assumption is and should be, basic principle here, the assumption is that what God told us in His Word in the Old Testament continues until and unless God Himself changes it. Until He tells us that it has been, that, for example, the law has been fulfilled, we should assume that it continues until He tells us that it's something different. Unless God says, we're doing it a bit differently now, we should continue with what He told us first. If Paul is just some guy with an interesting idea of how grace works, then we should reject him immediately for contradicting what God has said in his word in the Old Testament. But if he is a messenger directly commissioned by God to give us this new word, that the law of Moses has been fulfilled in Jesus and no longer binds us, if he is God's direct commissioned messenger, then we must listen to him because he is speaking God's word to God's people no less than the prophets of old did. This is one of Satan's oldest tricks. Did God really say? He takes God's word and twists it just a little bit. Not enough that we recognize the lie inherent in it, but enough that we're led away from Jesus in a slightly different direction just slightly, but believing that we're still following Jesus faithfully. I've told the story before about my first experience backpacking in the Rockies. Um, we'd been on the trail a couple of days when it got to be my turn to read the map and orient us and get us to the next campsite. Uh, but when it was my turn, I didn't, I forgot to take into account the difference between magnetic north and true north. Now, I was about three to four degrees off the whole day. Now that doesn't sound like a lot and it's in fact it's not a lot. It's about one percent of the circle. So not a huge difference. But the farther we walked, the farther away we were from where we thought we were. After a hundred yards, eh, it was a little more than a step or so. One step to the side and you're where you're supposed to be. After a full day of walking, 10 to 12 miles at that point, it was far enough that we, were, we entirely missed, like the, the last step of the day was a very steep decline down to where the campsite was supposed to be. And we entirely missed the path that would have been smoothly switchbacked and easily graded down to the campsite. And instead, we had to go and stumble down a dry creek bed, risking at a fairly steep angle, running the risk of twisted ankles and even of broken legs. It was probably 45 degrees, just felt like straight down. And if we'd gone multiple days without realizing that error, compounding it at every reading, we might have ended up completely lost with no idea where we were. When we get off track even a little bit, that little bit gets a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more the further we go. Satan doesn't have to move you very far off center. He doesn't have to move you very far away from Jesus. If you're away from Jesus at all, it will compound and you will find yourself farther and farther from him. So Paul immediately establishes his credentials, his right to proclaim the message that he has proclaimed, and in the same breath reminds the Galatians of the central fact 
of Christianity that makes it utterly different from everything else in the world, including Judaism. Jesus was raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of the promise that death now has no power. Jesus is the surety, the down payment that shows the security of our hope in him. This is something that has never been seen before or since. God has done something utterly without parallel anywhere in history. Then, as he goes on to identify the churches to whom he's writing, Paul fills out the message even more, showing that Jesus' resurrection is the, what the Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of, what promise it secures for us. Look at verse 4. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. The essence of the gospel is at stake, that it is fundamentally a substitution, substituting of one for another. Jesus, as the author to Hebrews tells us, offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. And in so doing, he removed, by paying for it for us, he removed the penalty for our sin. He substituted himself for our people, each and all. But as Paul will make clear as he fills this theme out in the rest of the letter, and these themes will continue all through the letter to the Galatians, as he makes clear, in doing that, Jesus removed from those for whom he substituted the responsibility for keeping the law because he had already paid for not keeping the law in its entirety on their behalf. As he says in Romans, Christians are not under the law but under grace. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we can ignore the law entirely. But that's a whole other conversation that we'll get to later. If we don't understand that Jesus stood between us and the law, then the results of his sacrifice are utterly irrelevant. Either we are under the law, requirements and penalties together, or we are not under the law, but under grace, requirements and penalties completely washed away. You cannot be under the law as to its requirements, but not under the law as to its penalties. You can't be under the law for your status to God as to its requirements, but not under the law as to its penalties. It's all or nothing. Now, as Christians, we are freed from bondage to the law, freed to pursue God's face without fear, because Jesus kept the law for us. He was circumcised on the eighth day for us. He kept the kosher laws for us. He kept the sacrificial laws for us. He kept the civil laws ordained in Deuteronomy and in, and in the, the rest of the law for the state of Israel, for the nation of Israel. He kept those civil laws on our behalf. He kept the moral law perfectly before the Lord. And we are given, as Christians, we are given the record of that perfect obedience in all things. In terms of your standing before God, Christian, you are exactly as righteous as Jesus earned. You are saved by works, just not by your works. Amen? Now again, we'll talk later about the appropriate response to that truth. But the truth on which we stand does not 
change. Everything necessary for your justification is completely and perfectly finished in Jesus. And the record of that perfection is transferred in its entirety to you, Christian. To each and every Christian. That record of perfect obedience, without exception, is transferred to you. And your record of complete and total failure to obey was transferred to Jesus and destroyed on the cross. But as if that weren't enough, the old commercial, but wait, there's more. In addition to that, Paul gives us some insight into the purpose for which Jesus did this. It was not simply so that you could stand before God clothed in an alien righteousness, though it certainly did that. Though that certainly was an essential part of it, it was not the only thing that it did. It was not, he says it was, verse 4, to deliver us from the present evil age. As much as it was a substitution, it was also a rescue operation. Redeeming those whom the Father had given Jesus from the present evil age. Now, to understand that phrase, we've got to understand the way the worldview worked in that day, particularly for Jews. They, he, Paul's not referring there to the current years in which he lives under the Roman Empire. God, through Paul, is not referring to the current years in which we live under the American Empire, or, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's not ca- talking about a particular set of years. In the Jewish mind, there were two ages exactly in the entire history of the world. There was this present age and the age to come. Period. That's it. Paul isn't specifically talking about the wickedness of the time period in which he lived o- under Roman occupation and authority. Rather, he's referring to all of the wickedness that comes under the curse and as a result of sin, where sin and Satan reign over men, and we are unable to do anything pleasing to the Lord because we are enslaved to sin. As Augustine said, we are not able not to sin. Even when we do the right thing, we do it for the wrong reasons. When you do the right thing for the wrong reason, it's the wrong thing. That is the present evil age. In the Jewish mind, the age to come would be the one in which the Lord established his kingdom in righteousness over all the earth when sin would be eliminated and death would die. Death would die. As Christians, of course, we agree. The difference is that we recognize that we live in both ages, at the point where the two ages overlap, that the age to come has invaded this present age and has begun. It is not complete yet, and we still look forward to a day when it will be made perfect in the the current age, the present age will be completely destroyed. But in this time, after the resurrection and before Jesus returns, both ages are here. The age to come has invaded and begun. It is already here and and not yet here at the same time. This is the tension in which we live. Overlapping ages. The war has been over since Jesus got up one Sunday morning and yet it still rages. This overlap should be hugely encouraging to you, Christian. 
Because we feel the tension of this all the time. We are already holy because Jesus took our place justifying us. But we are not yet holy because sin still wars in our flesh because we are not yet fully sanctified. We are already with Jesus in perfect communion, but we are not yet with him perfectly as we will be on that day. This tension between what is already true and yet not yet true, this tension defines our lives in many ways. As John Bunyan once summed up this tension, he said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. And we hear the echoes of Paul in Romans 7, right? Wretched man that I am. I am not what I hope to be in the world to come. But I still am not what I once used to be. By the grace of God, I am not what I used to be. There is this tension, this war going on in our lives between the age to come which has invaded and is snatching us out of the present age and into the age to come and yet we are still in the present age already and not yet and that tension eats our lives we look to the 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 cosmic rescue operation still at work as we look to the rest of the letter of galatians hold on tight to this encouragement he has done everything necessary for your standing before the lord Though we are not yet what we ought to be, not yet what we long to be, not yet what we will be, neither are we what we have been. Neither are we what we shall be. His resurrection secured without fail the fullness of your salvation and there is nothing you can add to it. Anything you try to add to the finished work of Christ actually takes away from the finished work of Christ. He has done everything necessary to secure your total and complete holiness before Him. And He is bringing you to the point where you will in reality match up with what He has declared you to be in your justification. He has done it all. It is finished. <laughs>